Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. Tonight's films are full of nothing but prestige. week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let's let the chaos begin. I am Adam Thomas, or am I only Adam Thomas? And I am Thomas Mariani, and I am his evil twin brother, Mamas Teriani. And uh, Adam, you have to shoot one of us. Who is the real person, Adam? You gotta shoot one of us. Mama's Tariani bought me beer once. <laughs> you know, he's got a good point. I deserve this death, clearly. Right. Yes. Frankly. <laughs> so, in honor of the week that we're uh, putting this out into the ether, Us is coming out, the new film from Jordan Peele, in which a family goes to their beach house and finds some home invaders have snuck in who look exactly like them. Uh, we decided to do a topic centered around actors who play multiple roles in a film, which, you know, can be gimmicky, but at the same sure. time, it can also be a really interesting display of someone's range when they have to play off themselves. Yeah, it could be Dead Ringers or Vampire in Brooklyn. I'm amazed we somehow avoided an Eddie Murphy movie in either, good or bad. I can't fucking believe it, because it's, ev- it's basically every Eddie Murphy movie. Pretty much since, like, what, Coming to America, right? It's been that? Yeah, yeah, I think so. At least. Um, even in Pluto fucking Nash, he did that. <laughs> oh, God. Somehow. I don't think I've ever seen And I, I don't think he did it in I Spy. Or maybe he did. I don't remember. Maybe. Yeah, it was Eddie Murphy as Owen Wilson. That's what it was. <laughs> oh, wow. <Yeah>. Perfect. <laughs> Uh, so, um, in honor of this, uh, we have two films in which at least one person played multiple roles, though, interestingly, the odd thematic connection is both our movies featured two people who play two roles. Yeah, technically, yeah. yeah. Right. I, I, never even... Even thought, I never even thought about the other one in the in the good pick, but yeah. Yeah. I guess uh, he plays multiple roles, technically. We'll get into all of that in a bit, um, but first, let's go ahead and start off with The Prestige. Every great magic trick consists of three acts. The first act is called the pledge. The magician shows you something ordinary. The second act is called the turn. The magician makes this ordinary something do something extraordinary. Now you're looking for the secret, but you won't find it. That's why there's a third act called the prestige. This is the part with the twists and turns. And you see something shocking you've never seen before. So, The Prestige um, is a film by Christopher Nolan. We've covered Christopher Nolan briefly here on the show when we talked about Dark Knight Rises in our DC Comics episode uh, that mm-hmm. you can listen to in the archives. And uh, this is an interesting point in his career because this comes out in 2006, specifically October 20th, 2006. And uh, it's him and his brother Jonathan collaborating on the script for this one. And this is right 
before he became the massive giant success of an auteur that he became. Because this is after his earlier successes with like Memento or Insomnia or Batman Begins, sort of the earlier half of his career. And then this movie happens, and then right afterward is Dark Knight, and everything's steamrolling from there. And I think it's interesting because it's weirdly, despite being a movie about two magicians who are warring with each other, played by Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale, it is also uh, pretty much a movie about the insecurity of being a showman, which I don't think uh, he could ever quite do after this. No, I yeah, no, no, no. He's not he's not struggling at all anymore. <laughs> no, not at all. And Adam, this he, was your pick. So uh, why particularly the prestige for this? Well, for a couple reasons. One is I think it's just almost a perfectly crafted movie. I think it's Hugh Jackman and both Christian Bale turn in just fantastic performances. It's probably one of the last times I didn't think Michael Caine really phoned it in. And I, I just love the period design. I love the costuming. I love the filming, the score, everything. And fucking David Bowie as Tesla just crushes in this movie. But also, for some reason, this was the year of, like, period piece magic films, and I would argue this is easily the superior of the two. Right, because they had a whole, um... What was it? The like Illusionist. The, right, The Illusionist was the warring one that had Edward Norton. I haven't seen that one, but it was a sort of a scenario like um, Volcano, Dante's Peak, where just two movies just happened to enter into the zeitgeist that were of a similar topic. You know, the Deep Impact Armageddon, both right. in the same year. It's also interesting because there was also another magic-based movie that starred Hugh Jackman and Scarlett Johansson the same year, which was the Woody Allen movie Scoop. Oh my god, I forgot about Well, I didn't forget about it. I probably didn't watch it. because Most I don't people really, forgot about it, to be I don't it's... watch Woody Allen movies, period, though, so... I, I, I can't imagine why. Why would no one watch a Woody Allen movie? I'm, I'm left in the dark. What, is there something that happened? Oh my god, you're crazy! Why don't you watch my movies? Oh god, our not-so-special guests. Please leave the show. <laughs> That's his brother. Aody Wallen. <laughs> Anyways, you know, Adam, you've been very critical of Christopher Nolan in the past, with especially some of his more recent successes. What do you think separates the prestige from some of those other ones that came afterward lack of ego maybe a little bit more restraint maybe more focus on actual storytelling other than the big grandiose camera shots and imax bullshit and all that i don't know that this is my favorite nolan movie but it's definitely in my top three i still got a real soft spot for memento mm-hmm. which is probably one of his most stripped down movies as far as budgets and things like that but i mean you got to figure dude People still talk about The Dark Knight. That it's the greatest comic book movie ever made. And in some circles, it's the greatest movie ever made. Heath Ledger's Joker just rings eternal. I mean, I disagree with two of those statements. But I, I can see it in his maybe his ego or his, his later films that that might have affected him a little bit. I mean, what the fuck was even Interstellar? But more than just like a look what I can do. I mean, I'll tell you what it was. It was a remake of The Black Hole. That's what Right. It this one feels like the last... Well, A, it feels like his last really good original idea. I mean, I, I'd argue I still do like Inception. Um, I got problems with it, but I do like the movie. But it's just, I don't know, man. He wasn't riding the Batman high yet. Like, Batman Begins did well. And I think Batman Begins is my favorite of the three because it's not as bloated. 
I guess that maybe that's the word I'm looking for. It, this doesn't feel as bloated as his later movies. I didn't see this movie when it originally came out. This was one of many films that I binged after The Dark Knight came out. I had seen Batman Begins in the theater, but as I mentioned in that DC Comics episode, I was still kind of like, well, I liked it, but it's not Tim Burton. Batman, right. <laughs> I was a little Tim Burton stan, which will be appropriate. Uh, put a pin in that for later. But I, when I saw Dark Knight, I... I was one of the masses, Adam, that fell in love with it. I really just dove deep into that. I, I, and I really wanted to, you know, just explore this guy's filmography after that. So that's when I watched, like, Memento and all of his earlier movies and The Prestige. At the time when I watched it, then I remember thinking, I like it, but I don't know if I, you know, love it. At the time, I would have said it was one of his lesser films for me, which is mm-hmm. to say I still liked it. It's the first time I've seen this thing in, like, a decade or so. Oh, and, wow. yeah, it's been a long time. And uh, having seen it again, um, this shot right up to, like, my number three spot. Of Dude, movies. it's good, because it's that fucking good. It's fucking great. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. I really dismissed this movie more at the time when I sure. saw it I there. think a lot of people did, though. I think right. this movie kind of got lost in the in the uh, Dark Knight's wake. Well, I mean, it also got lost in just, like, in that sort of, like, late 2006. I just don't think people were just as interested. At that point, he's like, sure, the Batman Begins guy made a match movie. Yeah, whatever. Mm-hmm. Right, that's true. Oh, it stars uh, Wolverine. Oh, sweet. It stars Wolverine the little Batman. <laughs> it's, it's like an IMDb <laughs> trivia, like those stupid IMDb trivia. like, did you know that these two actors would later be in comic book movies? Oh, you're saying Whoa. every single fucking actor right. who's Nowadays, in comic book movies everybody. now? Right. Oh, God. Having watched it again, like I said, it went way up in my estimation because it's like you mentioned, <laughs> there's a lack of ego that's here, but specifically, it's also sort of a hunger and a desire to like really sort of have showcased these two people trying to one-up each other in showmanship, which to be fair, you mentioned it was supposedly an original idea. We should mention it's based on the novel by Christopher Priest called The Prestige. So this wasn't just bore out of the Nolan brothers' head. But at the I same time... T- <laughs> it's, it's fake news. That's all it is. Yeah, that, fake that, news. that book didn't exist, no. What I like about it is it feels still tailor-made to the Nolan sensibility because this feels like somebody who is obsessed with the craft of being a showman. Whenever you see Christopher Nolan, he doesn't seem like the showiest guy. In interviews, he's just like, oh yes, I'm, I'm kind of distant here. I'm Christopher Nolan. Just mm-hmm. doing my, I, love, I love film. Fuck digital. <laughs> One of my favorite stories was, um, right. Edgar Wright was on the uh, Empire podcast, and he showed uh, Christopher Nolan uh, an early screening of Baby Driver, and he said, I mostly shot it on film, but there were certain points where I had to use digital. And I asked Chris, like, so what did you think of even, like, the little digital parts? Chris just told me, I had to look away at those parts. Oh, give the fuck. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Go fuck yourself. <laughs> Come on. Look, he's Nick a... Spielberg, and even Spielberg wouldn't do that. Steven Spielberg's also been much more embracing of digital in general in recent years. As, he still shoots as... a lot on film. Right. So does Scorsese. Right. But the thing is, it's like... It doesn't make one version better or worse in the public eyes. I mean, in in the auteur's eyes, maybe. And not but, to mention, this is also the guy who, like, constantly has movies where the aspect ratio changes, like, every fucking big action sequence in, like, The Dark Knight. Because they have to do the IMAX thing. Which, it's a, it, which is a problem when you watch that movie at home. It, it just constantly changes aspect ratio in a weird way. But, anyway, back to The Prestige. Um, you can tell... That it's really made by a guy who still has sort of a mentioned you mentioned like a nervousness, uh, obsession, and a desire to prove himself, which I think is so well displayed between Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale, coming from very different sides of it with the magic. Where 
Hugh Jackman, born showman. He's almost the greatest showman. As well, some would say. Some would say. Um, and then Christian Bale is a guy who knows the technical stuff really well, but just can't provide a stage presence. Which is so interesting just to see them bounce off each other, especially when they're kind of working together as assistants to Ricky Jay, who we should mention, real magician in the movie yeah, recently passed who away. Just passed. Yeah, yes, yeah. great, like, um, magician. He actually taught Jackman and Bale how to sort of, like, display the hand tricks that go on, which a lot of this is actually practical. They, they did mm-hmm. have them actually perform a lot of these, like, magic tricks just in one shot. And I like that also because no one can often get very edit heavy, especially in like admittedly the movie right before this Batman begins has that's its biggest problem. Is it's, it's pretty so edited, heavily edited, yeah. Yeah, versus yeah. this one, they know how to like really stay on especially the trick, because that's always the trouble with doing a magic trick in a movie, is instantly you're just gonna be thrown out of it like, oh it's you're gonna edit around it. It's smoke and mirrors to display the smoke and mirrors and all this other stuff. They do a great job of only editing when necessary for when they're performing tricks. Which I think is a it's a real show of restraint. So much of like the back and forth of Jackman and Bale just displays so much of that insecurity and doubt about being up on the stage, and more importantly about one upping the other person. Because especially at this time, um, you had to like be better than the other guy because there was only yeah. so many magicians and only so many patrons. It, I think that sort of cutthroat nature really makes all the like big horrible moments that happen really like have a punctuation mark to them. Like when Piper Parabo dies. Mm, that yeah, just that's... like there's, yeah. there is so much like heartache and just streaming out of Jackman, which really that's the biggest thing out of this watch. I was like, this might be Hugh Jackman's best performance outside, of, like maybe Logan. Yeah, absolutely. I think he, I, I, he was really good in the Fountain too. That's true. Which is the same year as well. Interestingly right. enough, <laughs> yeah, he was yeah. definitely experimenting this year. He was very busy this year. Interestingly enough, also the same year as X Men: The Last Stand which probably why he's kind of checked out of that movie. (laughs) He's just working in everything else. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No, just to piggyback on what you said earlier, too, not only did you have to be the best, but you had to be the best at doing tricks that were already established because they were very limited by their resources and technology at the time, too. They were all doing the same tricks. The girl drowning, the guy, you know, disappearing and coming on another door, the, the card tricks. They were all doing the same. They were just trying to add just a little more to each trick to make theirs better. It's not like they were coming out with these new grandiose tricks at the time. Right, they're not Penn and Teller. They're just working with a very small playbook in general. <laughs> right, exactly. Right, it's not a much, it's not, you know, Copperfield versus Lance Burton, which would be just awesome. <laughs> they're both going through <laughs> the Great Wall. The, another reason I really like this movie, you would think when Piper Paribu dies and drowns or whatever, due to his fucking want to just do a better trick and then not really paying attention to the safety and everything else, that that might be enough. But no, it only drives him further. I mean, the two leads in this movie are fucking sociopaths. Yep. I mean, in every single way. I I don't know which one is crazier. Well, I think I might. (laughs) (laughs) But they're nutcases, dude. I think that's another reason this movie's always stuck with me. There is no hero to this movie. Not really. No, right. They play characters that are so obsessed with their craft and what they do that they completely ignore people around them and honestly start crafting their lives, or in certain people's cases, half of a life, um, around the idea of doing a trick. Like, Christian Bale constantly talks about, like, the, the trick they'll remember me for, the one thing I have, which, obviously, when you do something you love you for a living, you obviously have such, like, a passion 
dip sure. into it. But the trouble is when you make that your work and you make that such your huge obsession, you end up completely destroying the people around you. Like, I think another reason this is one of Nolan's best movies is he has that common trope of dead wife syndrome, fridging basically a female character for the sake of accentuating the character arc for a male character. And I think this one has the best example, if nothing else, because not necessarily Piper Parabo, but fucking Rebecca, Rebecca Hall. Oh, man, Dude. Bummer. You feel so bad for her, but she's also a fully fleshed out character. More so mm-hmm. than most of the other female leads in his movies. Like even, you know, as much as I really dig Inception, Baron Cotillard is mostly just kind of like a cipher that's there to develop. Yeah, and Ellen Page is pretty much worthless too. Right, too. Yeah, and I mean, we talked about this also with like Rachel Dawes and the, the Batman movies has that problem. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Well, and even Carrie Ann Moss, though that in Memento, which works though because she's just that fucking scene. Oh, oh my god, it's so good. Oh. <laughs> I recently rewatched that movie, and that still holds up really well. It's such a great movie. For, yes, but uh, but yeah, but with uh, Rebecca Hall, she feels like such a developed character who is at the whim of, especially when you find out about Christian Bale's whole twist being which like, is so disgusting and fucked up. Yep, it's horrible. It's, it's really horrible. disturbing. And the the fact that just, like, she has had to go through that, through that this whole time, and that she keeps, especially, like, the biggest hint of, like, what might would happen later, which is, like, I don't know if you love me today or not. Right. That that whole thing, that uncertainty about, like, this whole relationship I built so much of a life around is that when this man just has, like, such a constant back and forth of, like, either loving me or not, how can I stand it? How can I go through with it? And especially when she, it drives her to drink, and that moment where Christian Bale just fucking response to her like do you love me it's like not today no uh, your heart uh, sinks for oh it's just and you're destroyed and the, especially because you as the viewer don't know what's going on yet you might have an idea but you're like what the fuck i mean well let's put it this way you know you think it's one thing and it turns out to be something completely different like when i first saw this i'm thinking it was just his obsession with his work which it's, it is but it's all—it's like an onion, like Shrek. There's there's another layer there. It's disturbing, and just heartbreaking. But the one good thing of is it you, you don't get too much Scarlett Johansson in this movie. Who I will say is my least favorite part of the movie. Not of, I, she's I, everyone's least favorite part. She's terrible. She's—I mean—the whole British accent thing. I mean, this is coming off of Match Point. Which you were mentioning Woody Allen, yeah. right? which, for the record, I still think is a great movie, and she's phenomenal in it. But I'm glad she stopped doing the British accent thing quickly. Her her natural smoky voice is is good enough. Yes, I, I can't do the I, I, d- d- bad accents just kill me. Mm-hmm. They're they're just they're the worst. Especially when you're but, surrounded by so many other British actors who are doing a, a better job. Well, you got fucking an Australian doing a great job of covering his accent. And you have David Bowie, a British guy, doing a great French, right? <laughs> That's well, what Tesla, Tesla... I think Tesla was French, or was he Russian? Well, at least, like, what I like about Bowie as Tesla is it feels authentically alien. He's a Martian wizard. Right, he feels like he's of no specific place, time, or universe when Which it comes I think in. that's the point, right? No, right, and that was the thing, is that he was offered the role by Christopher Nolan, like, initially just by, you know, through agents... And he was like, nah, I don't want to do it. And then Christopher Nolan literally met him in London. Like, had just fucking flew over, just like begged him, like, please, you are too perfect for this part. <laughs> You're exactly what I envisioned. 
and he he's excellent. He's just this weird enigmatic presence that comes in and out of the movie, and then especially that fucking entrance with all the lightning bolts is so dope. Oh, it's so awesome. Hey, it's my favorite David Bowie performance in a movie, um, easily. But be just like the, you know, I already began working on it, Mister Angius. You're like, dude, this guy's fucking just as obsessed and crazy as these guys are. But he's warning him, don't get, let it get to you like it got to me. It, it, it's just such a subtle line and a subtle performance. It, it, dude, And just fucking how great does David Bowie look with a mustache? I know, yes. He's almost unrecognizable. He's almost unrecognizable with the mustache and the hair. In fact, when I saw this the first time, it took me a hot minute before I was like, holy fuck, that's David Bowie. Reason I realized because of the eyes. Exactly, that's what I was about to say. Yeah. That's the main reason you're able to tell. It's just the moment, especially when they sit down to have the breakfast. It's uh-huh. like, oh yeah, he's got the two different color eyes. It's Bowie. Real quick, did you know he doesn't actually have two different colored eyes? Really? One of the pu- one of the pupils is just severely dilated. Oh. Then it makes okay. the eyes look like a different color. Little fun yeah. fact for you. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Yes, uh, but also a lot of credit to as his assistant Andy Circus, who's also oh, he's great. So good. And, and also hiding his accent really well with like a New York accent that seems pretty seamless. Well, he's kind of the master of that, isn't he? I mean, he's kind of the master of changing his voice. Yeah, I mean, his... I, I I can't think of one other thing he could be a master at. Like, what other specific acting thing that he does that um, few other actors do? I heard he's a good tap dancer. <laughs> he's a triple he's a good threat. Tapper. Yeah, he just hasn't <laughs> had a chance to put it on screen yet. No, in the movie where he they just. Uh, motion capture him for Fred Astaire, the biopic, <laughs> eventually, I'm sure. I mean, maybe. You don't know. How do you, you don't know the future. Who are you? Nikolai Tesla? You know, that's what the fourth Planet of the Apes movie is going to be. Oh, Tap God. Dancing of the Apes. <laughs> right, yeah. This movie just, there's everything in this movie. I, I don't know what kind of movie fan you'd have to be to not enjoy this movie. You get what I'm saying? Like, I th- it's not funny. I'll give no. it that. There's nothing funny about this movie, and if you think it's funny, then maybe you're a sociopath as well. I mean, Christopher um, Nolan is quite humorless. That's part of his. I think style. that's a hundred percent accurate. <laughs> yeah, I think he's very funny. I think any humor that might have been in the in the Batman movies might have come from Jonathan, but it's got just it's a thriller. It's a mystery. There's romance. There's uh, deceit, there's affairs, there's murder, there's magic and science and David Bowie's mustache. And I mean, there, everything is in this movie. It has, I would say, my favorite Michael Caine monologue, which is the one where he unveils the tr- the three acts of a magic act. Oh, that's really good. Opening the movie with that's so perfect. It's like, that three rolls for a magic trick. I'm not going to keep doing that because I can't keep it up. I can't quite do my cocaine. Except for that. That's how everyone does it. But um, that structure, which obviously also feels like it's very reminiscently meta of the three-act structure of a movie as well. Just like there's the the pledge where you see something normal, or at least what seems to be normal. And then the turn where everything turns on its head, the trick starts to happen. And then the prestige is actually having the thing come back, the thing turn back to normal or transform in some way. I think it's such a great way of outlining basically just how a, any sort of story really works in that way, but also just how it works for especially this particular story, how we're introduced to them we think are like these exact people, and then things start turning around, twisting the second act, and the third act, everything uh, just fucking flies off the handle. <laughs> Dude, it goes insane. 
Yep. The ending, the ending to this movie is so fucking disturbing and crazy when you really think about what's going on. Well, yeah, that's the genius of what works about the Hugh Jackman storyline, because that whole thing is clearly the misdirection that would happen in any trick, of just, like, it's the more obvious, showy example of, oh, okay, there's a more sci-fi basis to this, and how he keeps cloning himself and all this other stuff. It's definitely what, you know, Christopher Nolan wants you to focus on while Alfred's life is falling apart um, with the Christian Bale character. But then finding out that Alfred and Fallon the whole time has been his double, and they've been switching off just so that they can keep up the illusion. Yeah, his identical twin, yeah. Yes, is great. And then, interesting, because the second time you watch it, especially you're like, how did I not see this? Because <laughs> oh, these 100%. fucking button chops are barely disguising Christian Bale. Oh, and the fake nose and everything. I mean, it's so obvious, but you're not looking for it. That's the secret. You're not looking. That's misdirection. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but yeah, the, the fact that it just... That is such a fucked up idea. It's like, hey, I've been switching off with my I mean, twin brother. Sharing women and just, ugh. Sharing women and your daughter and your friendships and everything. It's I mean, just fucked up. When he chisels his finger off because they have to match. Yes. You're like, what the hell is going on? I'm seeing the floating clones. Like, all these clones that he drowned that they were all had conscience they were all him he was basically just repeatedly killing himself and that's fucked up too well especially when they establish that with the whole bird thing and how that yeah. trick just constantly happens where they just have separate birds it just shows how little they care about the life of a small animal they're like oh they're willing to do this even with a fucking actual human being who gets cloned by this horrible technology and <laughs> <laughs> drowns I mean, ridiculous. Yeah, but it, it feels at the same time very authentic for those characters, especially the the bit that really sells Jackman's performance for me is when Scarlett Johansson's talking about, like, but what about your wife? Don't you care about that? I don't care about my wife. I care about his secret. And then yeah. how he just snaps like that, and then there's just enough of a moment for him to realize how shitty he is, and he's just like, God damn it. <laughs> I said that. Yep. <laughs> That's what I said. Uh, it's so perfect. It's such a great display of Jackman, both as just like a big performer, and then when things just go belly up, how just completely desperate he is. And then, of course, him playing off his double who he finds at the bar. Great. Him as yeah. the drunk dude is... That's the most funny thing about this. And maybe in any Christopher Nolan movie, is his double. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, That's a good point. I'm glad that you got your reappreciation for it from watching it. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily a reappreciation, but it made you love it even more. Because I it, definitely think this is one of those that uh, not enough people have seen. It's definitely his most underrated one. Because of the ones that, you know, Memento and the Batman movies and Interstellar and Inception were such, like, more appreciated movies at this point. And between, it's like, what, this, Following, and Insomnia, the ones no one talks about this is the best one. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Because Insomnia mm. has a lot of problems, yeah, uh, to mm. say the least, and Following is barely a movie. It's a, more of a interesting <sighs> blueprint for his career than a movie. It feels like a college film. Yes. Like a thesis for film class. And it's also only about 70 minutes long, so it's barely a movie. <laughs> I, does it even touch 70? I mean, it's barely there. Maybe, yeah. It's, it's a little over an hour long. <laughs> yeah. But it's curious if you've 
watched his other films. Just kind of like, oh, this is the origin point of so much. Um, especially considering, I didn't know this until fairly recently, but you know there's a third Nolan brother, right? I think I did, but please continue. There's Jonathan Nolan, who co-wrote this movie, also created Westworld. The third Nolan brother, the older one, is a career criminal who's escaped from prison. Oh, good. So, which makes a lot of sense of his career, considering how much he obsesses over, like, criminals who leave their families. So they're kind of like the Hemsworths. <laughs> the older exactly. one the world. The middle one is, you know, a big, huge celebrity, and the youngest one is in a prison with Miley Cyrus. But um, yeah, Adam. Final thoughts then on the Prestige. I, I just I think this is just such a fantastic movie. This is not a movie that I can watch on constant rotation. Like it's not like a once every couple months watch the Prestige. Um, just basically because I want I won't do anything else that day if I watch this movie. It's just I'm gonna be so bummed out. But in a good way, not in like a record for a dream way, but in like a fuck what a good movie. God damn, that was messed up. I just think it's a great movie. Like I said, I, I'm good with 99.9% of it. The, my only problem is Scarlett Johansson and not even necessarily her, but the accent. It's so hard on the ears. This is a damn nigh perfect movie. Yeah, and like I said before, it's one that I gained a lot more appreciation with this watch for. I think it's an interesting look at obsession and showmanship and craft and how all that can conflict with each other and how when you devote yourself to some sort of art, you can ultimately just completely ruin the lives of everyone around you, people you love, and also just yourself. Because what's so interesting is imagining just... Christian Bale, after this movie, he's accomplished this amazing feat, the trick everyone's going to remember him for. And it's just, oh, you're going to just be with your daughter then? <laughs> like, right. now what do you do, dude? <laughs> yeah. It's supposed to be this, like, pleasant ending, happy ever after. Wait until his daughter grows up and she's like, what the fuck was this? <laughs> what did you do? <laughs> right, how do you bounce back from this? Yeah, how do you explain that to the little kid um, after a certain point? It's it, it's so fascinating just to see. It's, it's really, it is a movie about male insecurity in terms of just, like, being so in on this particular trick and completely ignoring people around you just because you're that obsessed. You're that devoted to, you know, wanting to get this amazing trick. You want this legacy. But it's like, ultimately, in the scheme of things, you're probably going to end up like Hugh Jackman, surrounded by all your trinkets in a burning building that's going to be completely destroyed. No one's going to give a shit. (laughs) It's an incredibly cynical movie, but in such a fascinating way that, I, as I mentioned, I would say it's my third favorite Nolan movie now. Um, I would still say Memento is my favorite. I, yeah, I, I still think, think that so. one works really well. And I would also say I I prefer The Dark Knight slightly, Adam. I know. Son of a bitch. I, I really do still quite enjoy that movie a lot, despite a lot of things that are wrong with it. And a lot of things that are wrong with the fans of it <laughs> as mm. as well. Um, but I, I, I think The Prestige deserves a lot more appreciation for all the stuff we're mentioning. Also, some of the stuff we ha- didn't really go into, like the costume design and... A, like, the set design also. There's just so many things you don't notice the first time that are really interesting, too. Like, there's the point when somebody's at the big press conference where Tesla's gonna have his thing go on, and the guy's like, this thing's gonna blow! Later on, who is that guy? He shows up as one of Edison's guys that show up at... Yeah. Yep. And which was a real thing. bitch. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. That, That he definitely had plants that would go to Tesla's shows, like, this is bullshit! Well, there's still conspiracy theorists out there who think that Edison had him murdered. Well, that's true. Yeah, I've I've heard those conspiracy theories as well. The one thing we can all agree on is that Edison was a fucking thief. No. 
<laughs> I, I, shocking. Sit down. There's so much on display here. I There's also a lot lately on these episodes. <laughs> yes, we, we all learn things. worldview is just warped. Exactly. There's, there's so much to learn, and especially from the prestige, every time there's something new to find out about. Um, also, I just want to give credit to the bit where Christian Bale shows up at the Transporting Man Act and um, has the doppelganger hang from the, like, the rafters. Yeah, is how fucking crazy. That's such a great comedy beat. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It it's, really is. Once again, it, it might be no one's funniest movie as well. Very sure. I got kind of a Phantom of the Opera vibe from that for some reason. Right, and also you're watching Hugh Jackman, you're like, you should have been Phantom of the Opera, not Gerard Butler. You probably should have been Phantom of the Opera. I mean, either him or Banderas, who was gunning for it. Banderas should have been Phantom of the Opera. He Banderas was... makes me want to go live with him, like, in an underground city. It's like, your face is kind of fucked up, but I'm fine with that. Sure. Yeah, but you're really, like, the, the quarter of your face I could see is really, like bronze and sexy <laughs> right. I th- well I think we gotta segue into our next one which speaking of just bronze and sexy all uh, over yeah, Chevy, Chevy Chase I mean no, Dan Aykroyd come on both oh, yeah. so much um, let's get into our second film the bad film nothing but trouble welcome to the last resort where something's always cooking how about a nice Hawaiian punch uh, we're some good friends Okay, let's eat. Where someone's always shaken. And anything's better than house policy. But whatever man touches her is the one she keeps. What? All they wanted was a little getaway. You make this surprise. No, not in front of all these people. Now. All they got was nothing but trouble. So, Nothing But Trouble um, came out February 15th, 1991, and is very infamous for being the one and only film directed by Mr. Dan Aykroyd, who obviously we all know from Blues Brothers and Ghostbusters, comedy legend in his own right. When I picked this, and what I find so fascinating about this movie, where in which Dan Aykroyd and also John Candy play two roles, um, is that um, it's the only film he directed, and... If you ever hear any stories about Dan Aykroyd and his screenwriting process, it's fascinating. Because with, especially Blues Brothers and Ghostbusters, he wrote the initial draft, and by draft, I mean he wrote a tome. A giant book for both those movies detailing every character's journey, the entire, like, universe that they lived in. Because, like, in the original Blues Brothers script, it was every single member of the band basically had their own movie outlined. And then with uh, the Ghostbusters, that infamously had a huge, like, backstory where basically, like, what we saw in Ghostbusters was, like, the original origin point of Ghostbusters. And we were originally supposed to have, like, a movie that was interdimensional and people jumped from place to place. And there were, like, basically intergalactic cops that would stop ghosts from going from one dimension to the next. Fucking crazy. So... Imagine, like, reading that and you're, like, John Landis for Blues Brothers or Ivan Reitman and Harold Ramis for Ghostbusters. And you're just like, hey, Dan, there's a lot of cool ideas in here, but we're going to make it a movie. And they did. But (laughs) ultimately, those two movies, and I'd argue maybe even Ghostbusters too, are classics. And the thing is, I'm not dissuading the idea that Dan Aykroyd isn't incredibly creative. Because he is. He's He's creative. He's just, he's kind of a silly billy. Well, it's weird where he's a silly billy, but also he's so creative, but has no structure to him whatsoever. This was him unfiltered. 
he was able to, especially this is coming off of another movie we talked about recently, Driving Miss Daisy, was him getting an Oscar nomination and him getting a bit more clout. And it was like, you know what, Dan, how about you make your own movie? And uh, the reason it's the only movie he's directed is because this is a rather infamous bomb that came out and was sort of a big turning point for Aykroyd because he never had nearly as much power after this. Just he really was relegated to like more character actory parts in the 90s onward. And um, it's also a big turning point for Chevy Chase in that this is the point of no return. And almost killed Demi Moore's career. Very early on, because this is her. Yeah. This is literally the first movie after Ghosts, right? Which was she was riding that high because of yes. Ghosts, and then did this one, and she didn't do anything for a couple of years, right? And but what I found it, out was really interesting about the production of this movie was Dan Aykroyd was able to do whatever he wanted, especially because this is Warner Brothers, and the whole reason he was able to do whatever the fuck he wanted was because they were too busy putting out fires on the set of a bonfire of the vanities, which infamously had a terrible production. And things were going wrong everywhere. And that was the big movie. So, like, all right, you know what, Dan? Do whatever you want. We got to handle this fucking clusterfuck that's going on over here with Bruce Willis and all these other people. So, you make your little $40 million movie. And boy, did he, Adam. Oh, he made a movie. While Warner Brothers was dealing with their clusterfuck with, you know, Bruce Willis, they just schlepped Chevy Chase into Dan Aykroyd's lap, who I heard, which I'm sure is true, was an absolute abrasive prick. What? Chevy? I, I know. Uh, look, hey, man. My turn to tell you. You might want to sit down. No, but he <laughs> seems like the nicest guy in every movie he's ever done. Really kind to women, I heard. He made something. Uh, I I can't say that I hate this movie. I love this movie. Well, that might be too strong. Jeez. <laughs> but I'm fascinated by this movie. That's a good adjective for it. It's fascinating. <laughs> it is just a blend of so much crazy shit like i remember back when we did our uh, friday the 13th episode and i said adam markets just threw whatever at the wall and just some would stick some wouldn't dan Aykroyd threw everything at the wall and it all sticked so he went with it but it like, stuck in the way that like a cheeto sticks to the wall and you're like maybe i should get this cleaned Right, maybe I should clean this off. But I'll let it harden first. This movie is batshit crazy. We should probably do a brief plot synopsis for those of you who might not be aware of this, because it's relatively obscure at this point. It was an infamous bomb at the time. Um, Chevy Chase plays this um, financial advisor guy who like writes you know newsletters that people use for stocks and trades in New York, and he meets Demi Moore. She's uh, an incredibly rich lawyer with a penthouse apartment who's like, hey, I don't have a car. Could you, like loan me your car because of course she right of course and Chevy Chase is like well I won't loan you my car but I'll drive you to wherever you want to go and so they go along with his Brazilian friends who just pop in the brother and sister who are in the movie for some reason they're trying to get to New England and on the way over they stop by this weird podunk town called Vulcanvania and they are stopped by a cop played by John Candy and they are, you know, stopped for a traffic violation. They get into a big of a chase after that point. And John Candy's like, well, we don't write tickets here. I have to bring you to the local Justice of the Peace. And they go to the local Justice of the Peace who lives at a weird, dilapidated mansion where there's all sorts of weird tchotchkes in front, just like piles and piles of garbage and other weird shit that's all around. And 
the gist of the piece is this super old, old, old judge played by Dan Aykroyd who basically forcibly sequesters them in his mansion and Dammy Moore and Chevy Chase have to try and escape the madness, which is this fucking mansion full of weird rooms and random things going on. It's, it feels kind of like a Texas Chainsaw Massacre mixed with like a Goonies. And people under the stairs. Right, people under the stairs as well. And I, I remember, I, I'm familiar with this movie because this is one of my father's favorite movies. I've talked many times about how my father yeah. introduced yeah. me to many horror comedies and many just like some of my favorite movies of all time. And what's so interesting about my father is he either is in love with movies that are some of my personal favorites of all time or movies I'm just like, what the fuck are you talking about with this? And <laughs> it's just kind of a mix between the two. It's way more in that latter camp, though. <laughs> like, as a kid, I remember this is one of the many examples where I was a kid and I'm like, you know, I don't get this, but maybe when I'm grown up, I'll get it. And I've grown up and I've seen it again for the first time in probably, like, you know, a decade and a half. And I'm like, I'm more confused now. <laughs> this yeah, is, I get it. I, I agree that it is, it's so fascinating as a movie, but it's so weird where it's fascinating for all the reasons except the main one it's supposed to be, which is... This is a comedy where I barely laugh. I find so little of this funny, and if anything, I find more of it just unpleasant. Like, especially, we didn't mention that another one of the, you know, weird side effects of this family, which you got Dan Aykroyd and also um, John Candy in twin roles, literally, as a male and female twin, granddaughter and grandson of the Dan Aykroyd character. There's also a couple other grandsons who are adult babies that live in the junkyard, like, they are man-sized babies that wear diapers and are shirtless and have little curls on top of their heads and are called Bobo and Little Devil. And these are characters that Demi Moore runs into when she tries to escape and she gets basically kidnapped by and forced to play games and shit. And those characters are deeply unpleasant to me. <laughs> Just, I can't stand looking at them. <laughs> I, I, I rarely feel nauseous during a movie and I really wanted to vomit. <laughs> <laughs> during all of their scenes they're just so ungodly i don't blame you and i i think i agree with you i don't think i laugh at this movie at all no it's supposed to be uh, a comedy Adam. it's supposed to be a comedy but i don't laugh hey i'm i'm instantly irritated by chevy chase in this movie and his quips he's a terrible like, lead you don't like him at all he's at all he's such an asshole in fact he's the whole reason that they get they get stuck there for the most part because he can't shut his fucking mouth. Nope. The, the part that creeped me out always was the you know him peeling his penis nose off. Yeah, we should then... mention Dan Aykroyd has a penis for a nose during yeah. certain shots. Not all the yeah. time, Not but for time. certain close-ups, he has a, a nose that is shaped like a penis. Some of you who have never heard this movie are hearing us describe it, and it's like, did you guys make this movie up? Is this not a real movie? It is no, a real movie. 100% real. Warner I, Brothers I, paid $40 million to make this movie. Yep. And it made eight. I think that the brother and sister offer some comedic relief. When I was a kid, I thought they were funny. But now, no. I mean, I still like the line, you know, there's some funky karma here, man. <laughs> like that, for some reason, still gets me. Maybe it's just the delivery. But this movie is just so batshit fucking crazy. Like, what? They have a murder ride in the backyard? Oh, the Bone Stripper with its own bone theme song? Yeah. <laughs> what? Digital Underground is in this movie? With Tupac? Right, which to be fair, I will... One, this is the film debut of Tupac Shakur. 
And two, that is easily the best scene of the whole movie. Yeah, all around the world, same song. When I first watched this, I thought they were just characters. I didn't know that Digital Underground was a real thing. Like at oh, all. yeah, buddy. And then I found you out later... You listen to the Humpty Dance. Yep, I, I found out about the Humpty Dance later, and I'm like, oh, okay. Oh, this, buddy. <laughs> this, this makes sense. Um, but yeah, that and that scene also feels like, oh, this is out of, like, a Blues Brothers. It, it, there's so many points where you see just, like, all the inner workings of Dan Aykroyd's brain. Like, that feels like a very distinctly Blues Brothers moment. Just the general weird vibe of this entire place feels like it could be, like, the setting of a Ghostbusters 3. Just, like, weird Haunted Mansion. It's just all around. Um, honestly, Chevy Chase also, he feels like the absolute wrong way to make a Bill Murray-style character. Yeah, no, you know what? That's a good point. He's very Bill Murray. He's very, like, Bill Murray uh, Groundhog Day-ish. Or his earlier movies were basically, he is an asshole, but there is still a charm. There's still some kind of likability to him, or at least an interesting edge that makes him a bit more engaging versus Chevy Chase like the moment with the elevator at the very beginning where like his friends are trying to get on the elevator and he's like no I want to fuck Demi more so I'm gonna have this all to myself mm. a Bill Murray could have pulled that off sure Chevy cannot because he just seems like a dick and it also seems like I want to fuck Demi more or demean her for the way she's dressed right which he did on she did because <laughs> he's a prick which is such a shame because she's also I think easily the best performance of the whole movie because she is trying so hard to make this work. She's really trying, because again, this is really early in her career, and she's hot off a ghost. I mean, she's really giving it her all in this. And I'd argue she's not that objectified in this movie. I mean, well, that might not be true. Well, but... there's there's the weird thing where one of the two babies is like, oh, I want Diane if I win. Like, oh, little Debo. That, that was yeah. the point where I was about to vomit. <laughs> Well, yeah, I don't blame you. <laughs> Good God. And also, I think the biggest crime of this movie, the biggest, hugest crime, especially because recently it was the 25th anniversary oh, of John Candy yeah. dying. In two parts, this is a complete waste of John Candy. 100%. It could have been anybody else. They do nothing with him. No. In two roles, because like the, the cop character, it's a different turn for him because it's a straight man role. And yep. you think, like, you know, this might be an interesting different turn for it, but his character disappears halfway through the movie and literally leaves the plot with the Brazilian siblings at that point. Yeah. And then the sister character is also quite frankly just like a really gross depiction where it's just like, oh man, who's this character? She's a fat girl and she right. has Ooh. masculine traits where she likes yeah. to like weld and fucking fix cars and shit. And that's the joke. And it's just that's doesn't talk at all in that part. I mean, either A, he couldn't do a female voice, or B, they didn't even care enough. No, I completely agree. And I think that was one of my problems with it as a kid, because I fucking love John Candy. And when I was a kid, I mean, Uncle Buck, Who's Harry Crumb? I mean, these movies were like my Bibles. I can still almost recite the entire movie of Uncle Buck. Plain Strange and Automobiles is an American classic. Oh my god, I completely, yes, of course. He's he's so great in Stripes as well. Um, his his brief bit in Home Alone is probably the best bit of Home well, sure. Alone. Yeah, well, I mean, sure. I mean, you, what, do you want to go through his whole goddamn catalog? <laughs> I mean, well, t- I, I will say this is probably unfortunate. This is a, not too long before he died. I and know, the the end of his career is so sad because it's just such a bunch of, like, wasted opportunities. Yeah, I know. When I was a kid, I'm watching it and I'm, I'm expecting to see John Candy. And this is not John Candy. Like, they give him literally nothing to do. I, I, I don't... 
I know he did the best with what he had, but what he had was nothing. All the things I have to praise about the movie are all from a technical aspect of it. And the scene where he actually is, like, serving dinner as the female character to his brother is actually pretty seamless for 1991. Yeah, you don't see too much of the the line in between them. Yeah, it's not very obvious. It's almost seamless. And all the technical stuff in this movie actually is really well done, where, like, the production design of it, the look of this seedy, awful piece of shit place... Mm. Looks so authentic. Like some, this once was a great mansion in like the 1800s, and it completely divulged into shit. Or the, that scene where they go into the basement and find all the different identifications of like, oh look, here's fucking Jimmy Hoffa's ID, <laughs> yeah, and all this other shit. It's like we said, there's some really good ideas bouncing around, and this could have been at the very least a really unique, interesting horror comedy of a movie if done right. Um, but then again, also watching this for the first time since I saw the better version of this movie, I just watched it realizing this is the movie that like people who hate Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 think Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is. Yeah, no, you're 100% on correct with that. I mean, 100%. There's too many ideas and nothing but trouble. And like you said, at the core of it, they, they could have had something special there. They could have had, as me and you have both said, it's our favorite of the franchise and one of my favorites of the genre, a Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Uh, but instead, you got, like, a house of a thousand corpses. A bit, yeah. And immediately, because, like, the only studio sort of interference they had was, <laughs> I love this idea that they were spent so much time trying to burn out the fires of Bonfire the Vandies, and the execs were like, all right, we cut a loss on that, but let's see, you know, maybe Dan's movie will be, like, Beetlejuice, some weird horror comedy yeah. thing, everybody will love it. And then they showed a screening of the original R-rated cut, and the executives were like, dear God. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is this? And they were only what like, have just, we rot? And he's just like, you know, just cut the violence. Like, literally, the only thing that would have changed about this movie was it would have been, would have been gorier, pretty much. And I don't think that would have saved this at all. I, it depends. It depends on how over the top the gore was. If the gore was really over the top and crazy, it might have worked and made you laugh. But it also depends on the context of it, I, I guess. I, I mean, who knows? Well, also, but just structurally, even with this movie, it's so all over the place. Where, like, you have the opening intro bit that's probably the most boring part of the movie, the first 15 minutes, where it's just, like, Demi Moore and Chevy Chase together, and you're like, I don't give a shit. And then they keep cutting so awkwardly between the t- various different storylines that are going on. This is a jumbled mess of an edit to where I'm just like, if you just added, like, gore scenes in here, I don't know if it would have saved this movie at all. I, I think there's just so much wrong with it on probably a not. very clear structural level. I don't envy any of those fucking executives of Warner Brothers just like, ah, how are we supposed to market this? <laughs> how are we supposed no. to put this out into the world and have people see it? Because it's just, it's it's a movie that I don't know who it's really made for except Dan Aykroyd. Oh, that, I mean, and that's the major problem. Like you said, it's all over the place. It's like a Pollock painting recreated by that baby elephant that can paint. <laughs> like what the fuck <laughs> it's kind of all there it kind of makes sense but at the same time what why <laughs> why Dan <laughs> yeah. and, and and me also say like I, I kind of like his performance as the judge character where I could see a world where like he would be like a fun memorable villain who has like certain the weird bits like he he fought in World War One and he's missing his leg and he has just like a prosthetic leg that he takes off every night or as you mentioned taking off his face pretty much when he goes to mm-hmm. sleep and this other stuff and the the actual makeup is really good on them and even 
as, as much as I fucking hate them, the, the babies, they feel like, wow, this is a completely well-realized vision of this awful, terrible thing I don't want to see. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the thing. It's just like, wow, this is a really well-crafted version of something that makes me want to vomit. <laughs> Visual just, epicat for you. <laughs> you. You know, probably. Because <laughs> just watching it, I'm just like, you know, I, I want to completely dismiss this, but I can't because so much effort went into it. There is so much clear, like, love and attention to detail and all this other stuff. <laughs> it's like seeing some kid who is an awful delinquent piece of shit, but their parents care about them so much. It's just like, I, I, I get it from you guys, but also this kid's fucking awful. <laughs> I don't know what you see in this. I think this is one of the few, not few, but this is one of the movies that we owned on VHS because I think everybody kind of bought this movie for some reason. Yeah, I'm trying to get him off yeah. the fucking shelves. Like, here's a dollar. Take it. I watched this a lot as a kid, which I probably, well, I guess I, it's PG-13, so it is shit. I still watch it and i feel like a kid while i'm watching it because i don't really my my brain's not fully formed maybe enough to understand what the hell is going on like you said i don't understand why why is the why movie why is movie (laughs) this doesn't this is such a bizarre off the wall gem of a movie like i actually kind of like it because how fucking crazy and bizarre it is if nothing else, it's the only movie of its kind. There's several movies that it it's reminiscent of, but none that it copies. And none that have copied it. Well, nobody would dare copy this. No, well, right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's like we said, this definitely came in the wake of Warner Brothers making a surprising amount of money with Beetlejuice. Where it's oh, yeah, like, 100%. Oh, oh, fuck, this and flew I off. think Dan Aykroyd is a horror movie fan. It's not ever really scary, and it's also never really funny. But it has all the aesthetics to produce both. It just doesn't produce them. <laughs> it's it's so weird in that way. But and there's there's funny uh-huh. ideas. Like I like the whole um the train set for the dining room table thing. That's yeah, a that's cool great. idea. Yep. That's it's really it well realized. The <laughs> yeah. Right. Yes. Or even um the the look of Dan Aykroyd, like we mentioned, or the the look of the bone stripper, which is as we mentioned, like. Dan Aykroyd sends his people to death by going on a roller coaster that leads them to a thing that strips their bones. Right. And then shits <laughs> them out the other side. And shits them out the other side. And I will say, you know, to, there are a few moments where I laughed. I will say the two distinct laughs I remember is there's a bit where Chevy Chase and Demi Moore are going down a hallway trying to find an exit. And they bounce by one that has, like, a bunch of horrible baby dolls inside. And Chevy Chase is like, oh, this must be the nursery. <laughs> and then keeps going. That's a funny bit. And then also when Chevy Chase is going through the bone stripper and he's like, oh, God, please, no, God, God. And he goes through and somehow miraculously is fine. And he's just like, oh, God. And then looks at himself like, like you, Lord. And then keeps yeah, going. Yeah, okay, yep, that one's good. That's because a really funny delivery. bit. Yes. Yep, I agree. It's, you know, Chevy has a few lab moments in this movie. And I like a lot of the structural ideas, like especially the bit where they come back at the end and they establish that all the cops are with them and... You know, Dan Aykroyd, and she's like, oh, I'm a feeble old man. None of these cops will realize me. Except every one of the cops knows and loves the judge. So he's right. in on all their pockets. And they're just laughing maniacally as it's going on. And then a bleak o- ending. Right, a, a, almost a bleak ending. And then the sort of um, Vulcanvania, the, the fact that they, they keep setting up, which is an actual thing for an, a, a Pennsylvania town where, like, there was a sort of volcanic eruption underneath from, like, all this tar that was building up. This is based I, on... I believe it's called Silent Hill. 
<laughs> yes, I believe that was the official description. And they they keep establishing the idea that like, oh, there's a rumbling and earthquake. It must be from the tar volcano that's coming up. Um, that ends How up blowing up. How fucking scary is that? that? Oh, that's incredibly terrifying. A tar volcano. Good God. It's terrifying, but at the same time, I totally get why this family would still stay there out of pride. <laughs> you, well, that and they're all sociopaths. And they're all sociopaths, exactly. They're just like, they're just waiting for death at any second to take all of them. Uh, which you hope that would happen until the incredibly awful tacked on ending. That yeah. is just, yeah. what What the fuck is this? Where Chevy Chase is like, oh, I'm back at home, everything's fine. I didn't have to marry John Candy, which is also a big crux of the plot that barely matters after a certain point. Yep. And uh, like, oh, I'm, I'm totally safe. Let me turn on the TV. And they're like, oh, Vulcanvania blew up. Excuse me, Vagrant, who's here searching through the rubble. And it's Dan Aykroyd just like, well, it turns out uh, we're all fine here, but I'm gonna go and visit my grandson-in-law. Because he finds his ID. And then Chevy Chase literally screams and goes through the wall and has a Looney Tunes, like, style-shaped hole. I mean, himself. what the fuck? Why would you do that? It clearly shows they had no idea for an ending. At all. I mean, he, it's just unrestrained. Dan Aykroyd, just, they let him do whatever the hell he wanted. Right. And, you know, all the credit in the world for managing to do that. All the credit in the world for giving us this as sort of a movie where, despite all my problems with it, I think it's a movie that this doesn't necessarily like have any kind of audience, but also needs to exist as a yeah. non-example. <laughs> this is a movie that needs to exist to show everyone who's just like, what if we let an unbridled comedic genius who has so many different ideas just go unstructured, do whatever the hell he wants. This is the anti-Bible to show you why you don't do that. <laughs> exactly. Because it is so weird, it is so ill-formed, it's such a, like I mentioned, a horror comedy where it's not ever scary and not ever really funny for the most part that has some interesting moments. Like I said, the entire bit with Digital Underground and same song, I think is a wonderful sequence. I think it's the best bit of the movie. It's for sure the best bit of the movie. I almost recommend just watching that bit on its own and yeah, not watching watch the, the music video. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I showed Adam, there's a music video that exists with like footage of nothing but trouble. And also all the guys from Digital Underground and Dan Aykroyd in awful racist outfits. Uh-huh. Because it's like, oh, all around the world, same song. So what's the premise of the video then? Let's all dress up as either, like, bad Chinese stereotypes or... Ugh, and they or, get Dan Aykroyd. Oh, man. And they, get Dan, and they get Dan Aykroyd to also dress up like he's a gangster rapper at one point. It's embarrassing. Uh, I love the uh, fact that Tupac was the only one who knew, like, I'm not going to go down this road. I'm just going to be in, like, an African dashiki. I'm not wearing Groucho Marx glasses. I'm, just, I'm not dressing up like an Eskimo. <laughs> I'm not doing any of this other shit. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna be in the one costume I could kind of get away with doing. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, and I also uh, love him in the same song bit when Dan Aykroyd starts playing the organ, and it's uh, just fucking Tupac reacting like, "Yeah, dude, keep going." <laughs> I know. Funniest bit of the whole Tupac movie. Shakur it's fucking was Tupac. The hardest of hard motherfuckers that ever existed. Who also, after uh, this, had a pretty successful acting career that not people, a lot of people talk about. It was like, getting there. It was getting there. Well, right. Or after the year after this was Juice, which was like the big like, oh mm-hmm. shit, you're actually really a great actor. Um, that yeah, not a lot of people talk might about. be pushing it, Thomas. One of the better examples of a musician turned actor. Okay, I'll give you that one for sure. I, w- I would definitely say that. Um, but but yeah, it, it all results in nothing. But we're honestly like watching that sequence and also any of the scenes of Demi Moore. I was just like. 
could you have just made this more of like a Scooby-Doo movie where it's like Demi Moore and the Digital Underground gang in this fucking place? Oh my place? god, that would be amazing. That'd be a so much better movie, especially one of the guys in Digital Underground at one point is looking around like, man, this place just looks like such a fucking nightmare awful world. White people heaven, I guess. Right. Really funny got line. I'm just like, fuck, it should have been just Demi Moore and the Digital Underground going through hallways and shit in this fucking mansion. Humpty, Humpty constantly trying to like seduce her with his sick lyrics but it doesn't work because you're wearing a fur coat and a groucho nose <laughs> i mean you know there it goes there it goes yeah, there i go there i go here i go again <laughs> <laughs> yes uh but for for all these reasons like really it, it's just it's such a unpleasant but necessary thing in our society we needed this to prove that you don't give dan Aykroyd free reign you give dan Aykroyd the guiding hand of another artist to condense his vision to something that's palpable which is not to downcry Dan Aykroyd because if nothing else he made a movie that no one else will ever make again or should ever or should ever for sure but your final thoughts as well Adam I'm gonna keep it short because I agree with literally everything you said this is on the spectrum of so bad they're kind of good movies like I think this is an entertaining movie to watch with a couple buddies like we said before maybe a couple beers couple other things you know what what, you know whatever the kids are into these in molly and watch nothing but trouble i don't don't No, that would be a really bad decision i don't even know what it does don't do that no i think it's a fun movie it's a terrible film but it's a entertaining curiosity just don't go in expecting to laugh a lot you're not gonna laugh at all you're not gonna be laughing you're not gonna be scared you're gonna be scared you're more you're mostly gonna be perplexed Go, go in like you know what the the best atmosphere to go into this with is like go in and, and imagine you're seeing like one of those weird freak shows off the side of the road where that's, you're like that's an accurate description right where you're just like you're walking through you paid like five bucks maybe to go in and all these tchotchkes are around they're like I haven't seen anything like this before there's probably a reason <laughs> um, if you had to pair this with something what would you pair this with for a double feature I mean you kind of mentioned. House of a Thousand Corpses, I'd probably say, which, to be fair, this we're watching this gave me a bit more respect for House of a Thousand Corpses because that at least feels slightly more like a movie, yeah. <laughs> and that there's more structure in that actually, <laughs> just which is insane. I know, <laughs> but I can't disagree with you. Um, for some reason, the one that kept popping in my head was Castle Freak. Y- you know what? That's not a bad choice. But also, because that's a that much is a ba- crazy curiosity of a movie as well, but not as bad of a movie. No, it's a much more fascinating and better movie to watch. I yeah. would say make Castle Freak the second part of that devil mm-hmm. feature. Mm-hmm. You don't want to end on nothing but trouble. No, you never want to end on nothing but trouble. I'll also give it credit for it never feels like it's long. It never feels like a slog. I've watched plenty of other movies that are trying to be comedies that I don't laugh at that are so much more grating to watch. Versus this keeps your attention consistently, even if it is just more of a train wreck. Why is this happening? Who is this happening to? Who is this for? Any number, like, you form, like, a giant scroll of list of things of what's wrong with the movie. (laughs) Just so much parchment could go into listing all of the things that are wrong. But that's something. Yeah, I mean, it's got that, at least. Uh, You know what, I think that's the perfect uh, cap of this movie. This movie is something. Yep. And um, that is the end of our something of a double feature here. Now, before we go, uh, and more importantly, before we do our picking for next week's double feature at the very end of the show, stick around for that. We have some feedback to read from all of you where we asked on at DEDBpod, which is our Twitter and Facebook page. 
Um, every Monday we ask about what's your favorite and least favorite examples for whatever topic that we're doing. And obviously we asked in honor of this episode for what your favorite example is of somebody playing double or multiple roles in general. And uh, we got some friends of the show first that have to say some things. Uh, first, there's Shaquille Lambert at Shaq Excellence, who says, Best Devil's Double, Dominic Cooper should have gotten an Oscar nom for it, honestly. And then worst, literally any Eddie Murphy movie where he does this after The Nutty Professor. Sarah Sorrentino says, uh, Norbit. Now, I refuse to clarify if this is the best or worst example. Jonathan Habdemichael says, uh, The double starring Jesse Eisenberg is an overlooked and well-done example of the evil doppelganger film trope. Lance Langford of the Horror Returns podcast says anything with Peter Sellers, specifically Dr. Strangelove. Also, I know you guys hate Austin Powers, so you will probably not agree, but I thought he did a great job playing the different characters in those films. Uh, Brian Stitcher, also of Horror Returns, says Double Impact with Jean-Claude Van Damme. Um, James Rodriguez says The Prestige is a brilliant example of this. On the flip side, you have Adam Sandler in Jack and Jill, or Eddie Murphy in Norbit. Putting on a shrill voice and a fat suit doesn't make for a convincing change, guys. Uh, Brian Kane says, Best recent example of this has to be Jake Gyllenhaal in Enemy. I also have nostalgia for the Richard Dreyfuss roles in Moon Over Parador, although I'm sure it's not a particularly good movie by a modern eye. Um, and I want to say The Night Professor is the worst, but I feel that's more of a useful as a time capsule than it is as a movie. Uh, Ebony Sierra Bell says, recently rewatched Multiplicity and really enjoy it. And uh, then Chad Hunt says, uh, Jeremy Irons in Dead Ringers, Ben Affleck in Jane Silent Bob Strike Back, and Mel Brooks in Blazing Saddles. Well, hey, I haven't seen The Devil's Double. I've always, I've wanted to watch it. It's been in my queue for like ever. I Literally, it's one of those... You know how it goes. You throw it in your queue and you just forget. So I do want to see The Devil's Double. I heard it's fantastic. It's very uh, good, especially for his performance alone. It's very worth watching. Sarah can, you know, come on. We, we know exactly where that belongs. Because it's her favorite movie of all time. Yeah, right. Exactly. So good for her. Yeah, good for her. I also haven't seen the double. That one's really good. Um, we were talking about last week with Brazil. I don't you can definitely like see Eisenberg, though, man. I really like Eisenberg when somebody knows how to utilize him. I think that's a great example, especially if nothing else. One of the few, sadly, few movies directed by Richard Ayodi of um, the oh, IT really? crowd. Yes. Oh wow, Moss. Yes, that's awesome. Moss from I IT crowd. He's so great, <laughs> and that's a really great movie. Uh, that he oh. directed. Uh, Lance, I don't even want to talk about it. He can go fuck himself. <laughs> uh, I can't agree with Brian more. I love a good cheesy Van Damme movie, and Double Impact might be one of the cheesiest of the cheese. Have you seen Double Impact? John's Claude Van Damme in general is a very blind spot for me. Watch Double Impact. I've heard that one, and then um, Time Cop are the ones to watch, right? Yeah, Time Cop's pretty dope. I mean, I'd throw a couple more in there, because I, I loved that movie. Uh, Kickboxer. Right, yeah, that's another one I've heard. Hard Target's good. pretty bad, <laughs> but it's fun. Hard Target has one of the most over-the-top Lance Henriksen performances of all time. Holy shit, that's all you had to say. Right, exactly. Um, and, well, obviously James is right on board with us. Right, of course, yeah. And I do I do want to say to address Lance real quick with one, Dr. Strangelove, obviously. Mm. Peter Sellers did that so well in many of his movies. Um, And then with Austin Powers, I don't think necessarily the problem is Mike Myers differentiating through some of those characters. Because I think that works especially in the first Austin Powers really well, between him and Dr. Evil. Mm -hmm. I think it's just as he kept adding characters, he had less of an idea. So 
I agree, and I, I think we even addressed that on the show. It, it's not that I don't like Mike Myers as, you know, Austin Powers or Dr. Evil or even Fat Bastard, which is a problematic character, but, you know, he's given it his all in that fat suit, and which, by the way, is pretty well constructed. But in the third movie, when it becomes that he's every single character, it's almost like you're watching somebody's narcissist complex play out on screen. Like, I'm untouchable. This is my movie. These are my uh, characters. We, we went into that in our spoofs episode where we talked about Goldmember a lot, for well, I'm sure. I'm talking about it more. <laughs> well, go and, must be drawn here. Go, go and download that episode to hear more of Adam's thoughts. Uh, please, for the love of God, do. I mean, and we also did talk about it in that episode. You know what? A, a good example of that where he played multiple roles and it worked was uh, So I Married an Axe Murderer. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. That's and nice. I think... Th- that's where it works is that when it's just one person playing off a couple of things. Like, obviously, we downplayed Eddie Murphy a lot between Norbin and all these other things, which, to be fair, deserved. Also, another one of my father's favorite movies is Norbin, which is weird. Oh, my God. I is, know. That's <laughs> I think nobody's it, favorite movie. To, to be fair, this is also the man who introduced me to Coming to America, which is a better example of Eddie Murphy oh. playing all the different roles. And I'll say, after... It's the best, right? Probably the best. Though I will say, uh, an underrated one, at post Nutty Professor... Would definitely be for me, Bowfinger. Yes, I agree. I'm not a huge fan of that movie, but I am a fan of him in that movie, big well, time. Well, especially because like his, there's the one role where it's basically him being kind of Eddie Murphy. It's it that's the weaker part. It's not. I don't like that whole subplot of that movie. That's why I think really drags it down. But goddamn, when he's the nerdy dude, the double, he's so fucking funny. I, I, I agree. But I also do like when he's the Eddie Murphy guy and he starts to buy into that all the crazy shit's going on. Well, it's, it was clearly like a Scientology parody there, but I just love the other character way more just because it's so unlike anything Eddie Murphy did uh-huh. before or since. I wish he would do more stuff like that where he's so much of like, he's like a meek, awkward dude. Like there's a point where he's, they're going to like, oh, you have to have the sex scene with her. And he's like, no. And she opens her top. Like, oh, this oh. is awesome. <laughs> it's so fucking funny. You're doing great. <laughs> Like that's he saves that movie when that oh, when he comes 100%. in as that character. He's so fucking funny as that part. But aside from that, it was a lot of just no Eddie. Yeah, a lot of no Eddie stopped doing that. Um but you know, a Chad also mentioned especially Jeremy Irons and Dead Ringers. Amazing. Probably one of the best. Maybe his best performance in the movie, and that's saying a lot because that dude's a very talented yeah, I mean, actor. Fuck you, Jeremy Irons, yeah. He's, it might be one of the best examples of an actor playing dual roles. Yes. I mean, it's such a fucking good movie. And it's Cronenberg. I'm a huge Cronenberg fan. So. Right. I mean, and it's I, not as body horror heavy as his other movies, but it's probably oh. the best example of his non-body horror work. Just because. I think so. It's it's so fucking. It's such a dark, depressing, disturbing drama with horror sort of aesthetics to it that I mm-hmm. love with that. It's, it's great. But also, I am a big fan of. I think this movie's gone down in my estimation since I was younger, but. Fucking Affleck making fun of himself and Jane Silent Bob, though, is the best part of that movie. I used to love that movie. Mm-hmm. It used to kill me. Mm-hmm. I watched it probably about maybe, I don't know, four to six months ago. If you have problems with, like, Ace Ventura and movies like that now, this one is not for you. Oh, no, I've seen it recently, and it, I don't think it holds I, up very well. But at all. I find but, it completely unfunny and offensive. But he, but the Goodwill Hunting two thing though is pretty great. Is well, that that is Gus Van Sant? So roll then, <laughs> Jesus Christ, Ben! I said I'm busy. He's counting his money. <laughs> Lion face, ah, lemon face, ooh, <laughs> so good. 
the applesauce bitch. That's that that whole scene is worth watching on its own. Oh, that's a good one. Mel Brooks is probably the king. Not necessarily in Blazing Saddles, though, I'll say, because he barely plays other roles besides the mayor character. I'd say Spaceballs is probably one of his best examples. That I agree with, even though he does not change anything about playing <laughs> either Yogurt or President Scrooge, Pres- which President is great. Scrooge. Oh my god. We gotta talk about that movie at some point. We, we will. That... Your favorites. that is my one of my absolute favorites as well. It was as a kid, and I think I still like that movie. I, well, Young I mean, Frankenstein is my all-time favorite Mel Brooks. Uh, well, that's the correct answer. But <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, we also had some feedback that ran off from our last episode about the dystopian future films. First, Ryan Lindley says Idiocracy, short and succinct. And to contrast that, Oliver Sloan had a large list of ones he considered good and bad. Uh, I love first, Oliver. What a champion. Oh, no, he, he writes, like, essays for us, and we appreciate uh, yep. it. Uh, but just a just a few of these um, that he referenced for his bad included Zardoz, Battlefield Earth, Warriors of the Wasteland, uh, the nineteen ninety The Bronx Warriors, uh, Class of nineteen ninety nine The Postman, Waterworld, uh, Battle Truck, Solar Babies, oh, um, and, and then for the good Equilibrium, Brazil, A Boy and His Dog, uh, Strange Days, uh, The Running Man, The Road. Um, Night of the Comet, Children of Men, Hardware, and then I picked bad films at random based on how pissed off I was watching them. The good films were personal favorites. I don't want to put too many of the regular things everyone's seen. A lot of odd, really good films, yes, which I I do agree that there were a lot of gems in here, including, especially, I recently watched Strange Days, and that's an amazing fucking movie. Fuck! Dude, when we first started this podcast... And our first idea was to do random movies. My first idea was to do Strange Days and Willow. My well, I don't know if we ever talked was... about this on the show, is that there was a, originally an episode planned that was just going to be random. Right. Right, and our Marvel episode that ended up being our first episode was just a was test our... show. Exactly. I was going to pick Strange... Strange Days, since it came out, has been one of my favorite movies. And it's one of the most sadly prescient movies that's ever existed. <laughs> Oh, it is, but it's still so good. So great. Maybe Catherine Bigelow's best film, short of Point Break. Yeah, I agree with that. One of the baddest-ass Angela Bassett roles of all time. She's so fucking great, and so many people waste her, and that's such a great use of her. She's so awesome. She's such a badass. And and a very unlike Ray Fiennes character. Put a pin in it. We'll talk about the movie at some point. Yeah, okay. It has to come up. We we will talk about that at some point. It's our life's mission. Don't feel anything between you and Faith. So uh, but we want to thank all of you for all the feedback that we received here. We also want to thank uh, Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used on the show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Uh, thanks to Emily Scarda for the art for our show. She accepts commissions at 502rs.com slash eescarda. And also I wanted to throw this in here. At the time when this is being released, uh, I want to thank the Horror Returns podcast because I would have been on their recently, I believe, released either right when we put this out or right after episode of their March Madness bracket, where we broke down the best horror kill of all time. I'm one of about six or so panelists on that episode. It's uh, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, good. I'm sure it's fantastic. You know, I heard it in future time, and it's beautiful. Yes, exactly. And you can also find us, as we mentioned, on Facebook and Twitter at DEDBpod. And also at doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com is our email address where you can send feedback to. Um, you can also follow me on my own individual account at NotTheWho'sTommy on Twitter. 
where I post my musings, and also I write at my blog, marianithomas.wordpress.com, and you can find Adam trying to hone his magic craft and find the perfect trick that everyone will remember him for in uh, I actually have a web address. It's www.eatbutlancelanford.com. Hey, well, keyword, but. <laughs> and you can also uh, make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or any podcast app you use. We're also on YouTube, uh, Spotify, uh, the Stitcher, the, the all those different things. You can find us and listen to us, and please rate and review us there to give the show more visibility. Please. And now uh, it is time for us, before we leave, to pick our films for next week. So, um, in honor of next week when we're releasing this episode, it'll be the uh, week that Dumbo debuts in theaters uh, from acclaimed auteur on his own right, Tim Burton. Uh, We're doing an episode about Tim Burton, uh, who has a very long and a very fascinating career. I agree, and is anybody actually excited about Dumbo? You know, I've maybe been more excited because of the other two Disney remakes that are releasing trailers. Yeah, I, okay. I, I don't okay. give a shit about Lion King, and Aladdin looks like a fucking disaster. Oh, Aladdin looks atrocious. How are you going to fuck up Jafar, one of the top three Disney villains of all time? Because maybe you focus way too much on making Will Smith blue. Uh, and also, I was, make... totally, I was totally fine with him not being blue. Yep. And him just wearing blue garb. I was totally fine with that. Which apparently he'll be some of the movie, but also he'll be blue at other points. They just can't oh, really God. find yeah, a, a middle ground. Also, that movie just looks like Magic Hitch. Because yeah, he's basically. literally playing like yep. a matchmaker trying to get him and Jasmine together. Yep. <laughs> For sure. But you know, by process of elimination, you know, Dumbo has a weird Michael Keaton performance. We haven't seen that in a Tim Burton movie in a long time. That and the Danny DeVito are probably the two big right. ones I'm excited about. Exactly, yeah. And his new muse, Ava Green, who he's just like, hell no, I mean Ava... Yeah, whatever. Probably. But but anyway, so we got two films uh, to pick. For those of you who are maybe new to the show, basically every week at the end of the show, Adam and I come to the table with two movies each that fit the basic tenets of premise that we're doing for the next episode. So I have two Tim Burton-directed movies I consider to be good, and Adam has two that are considered bad. We don't know what each other picked, but we've each assigned numbers between 1 and 10 to both our movies, and the other will pick a number between 1 and 10, and whichever one gets closest ends up being the good and the bad feature. So, Adam, for my two good movies, number between 1 and 10. I'm going to go straight up number 10. Okay. At number 7, I had the movie that should have changed Tim Burton's career, and one that um, I think has gotten a lot more appreciation since it came out. It is 2003's Big Fish. Oh my god, I love that movie. That movie makes me cry, so fuck you for that. Oh, but do, do you have a soul? So I mean, I guess arguably. You know, that movie makes you cry a bit, yeah. <laughs> That's, oh, what those a good are movie. the rules. God damn. Okay, what was your other pick? My other pick, at number two, I had Sleepy Hollow from 1999. I, you know, I really like Sleepy Hollow. A lot of people give it shit, but I think it's so fun. It, it's what I love about that movie is it's a slasher movie, but instead of like teen coeds, it's British character actors who gets people love. <laughs> and Jeffrey is, Jones and Christopher Walken for some well, reason. That, well, he's there's so much. I recently rewatched the movie; it holds up very well. I would say mm-hmm. it's also one of the last, I think, really good examples of Tim Burton and Johnny Depp collaborating in that one for sure. Yeah, I can agree with that. Yeah, um, but but yeah, the, so now. For the two yeah. bad picks, Adam, I gotta pick number between one and ten. And so please, uh, shoot. 
I'll go with number four. Hey, how you doing? Planet of the Apes. No. Oh, God, no. You blew it up. Damn you. Pew, pew, pew. Damn you, Walter. Oh, God, I was afraid this would happen. Yeah, well, I mean, of course. And it... <laughs> Fuck. My other choice was Charlie and the Chocolate... Or, yeah, Willy Wonka. No, Char- Charlie, and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is his version. The awful one. I'll say this. I'm at least glad we didn't get, like, Alice in Wonderland. That is the worst. I didn't want to put myself through that again. That That is, I would say, the worst. And it just edges out Planet of the Apes. Yeah, I didn't want to see CGI Crispin Glover again. No, they, and you know that's interesting. We're covering two movies. This one followed the other directly. Holy shit, that's true. Right. So, because uh, Planet of the Apes two thousand one, and then Big Fish two thousand three. So this is a specific spot in his career, which will be wow. fascinating that's, to look at. That's something, I think. That is something. Much like nothing <laughs> but trouble, it is something. But uh, on that note, Adam and I, and also our own doubles, will say goodbye, goodbye. Long live the toot, the tooch. <laughs>